Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership and emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Welcome, audience. Thank you so much for coming back to another Angular Insights episode. Gil and I are thrilled to be joined by Emil Ephraim. He's the co-founder and CEO of Neo4j. He will be leading a chat on open source and category creation. It's a pleasure to have the CEO of uh, Neo4j here. Uh, Neo4j, for those of you who don't know, is probably the leading graph database company in the world. They were founded, so not until 2007, we have a note here that says that you sketched this out in 2000 on a plane from India. So you might want to tell us that story at some point, but raised since 2007, has raised over $500 million and is valued at over $2 billion according to Crunchbase. An amazing success story, a Nordic success story, a leading technology company. But Emil, thank you so much for doing this. We hope to have a pretty interesting conversation about open source and categorization and pricing issues and some of the early uh, learnings from your early phase of your journey. We should start just with some questions. Anne, do you want to... Yeah, yeah. So for those like me who may not be super well-versed in this space, could you talk a little bit about what actually is a graph database and why does it need to be open-sourced? Yeah, so I guess two things in there. What was a graph database and what's the connection with open-source? And you framed it as as an answer for for non-technical folks. I'll do that really high-level one, right? Well, it's non-technical and technical. Oh, yeah, there you go. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. So... Look, it, it, database is a word that we all throw around. Like you can read about databases in, in, in the press, but actually very few people who aren't developers actually know what a database is, right? So database is the software part of a big system that stores data. We all know what the hardware part, it's called hard disks, but it's typically run on big servers and it has to organize data and those hard disks in some way and shape and form, right? And the traditional database is called an SQL database or a relational database. It was invented in the 70s, 1970s, back when dinosaurs ruled the earth and the world looked very different from what it does today. And, and, and it organizes data in rows and columns. So you can just think Excel, right? A very natural thing. If your job is to store, let's say, a payroll system, like a salary list, it's like first name, last name, role, salary. It's like a pitch perfect example of it fits into a table really well. Fast forward to today, the world is completely different. We have an explosion of data. Data is much more chaotic, connected. It evolves very rapidly. We all carry multiple phones around. We're talking on these AirPods and we're on this Zoom way, even though Gil is apparently, I could reach out with my hand and touch him almost across the bridge. We're still talking on Zoom, right? And so it's a completely different world than in the 70s. And so a number of new databases have been born and graph databases is one of them. And and rather than the rows and columns, they work with nodes that are connected to other nodes through relationships. And then you can attach key value pairs to both of them. So it models information like the human brain, which is neurons connected to other neurons through synapses. So it's a very natural and organic way of working with information. It's just really hard to do that in computers up until the last 10, 15, 20 years. So that's at the highest level what a database is. It leads to all kinds of benefits that I'm very happy to speak to later if if, if we're interested. But that's at the high level what it is. And the open source piece, it's about going to market. 
right? It's not about a means of production. I don't believe that in order to, at least for us, we never intended to release it as open source. And then an army of developers would rise up from the bushes and start writing my product for me. I never believed in that. It's a means of distribution. So we are a developer first company, right? So we believe that developers can and should choose the tools that they want to use to do their job. And they're part of a broader trend of consumerization of the enterprise. It means that we can bring our own devices into our companies, even if you work at a big, big company. And the same trend happens in the world of developers where they can choose their own. And in order to be choosable by developers, it's, it's a lot easier if you're open source. It's maybe even a requirement unless you, you live as a service. So a huge amount to unpack there. And how did we get there? And what did we try? What worked and what didn't? I'm sure we're going to get into it. But that's kind of the highest level. Very cool. So another kind of like fun, easy question is the name of the company, Neo4j. What does it mean? How did you come up with it? Yeah, I figured I would have a name that looks like a password. So Neo4j looked pretty similar to that. No. So Gil referenced the fact that kind of we sketched out the what's today's called the property graph model on a, on a flight to Bombay back in 2000. And so that's when we first had the initial project that ended up inventing ultimately the first graph database. And we needed to have a project name for it. And we called it Neo because Neo means new in Latin. And this was a new way of working with data. Or at least that's the story that we told ourselves and others. It really was because I'd just seen the Matrix movies and they were freaking amazing. So of course I called it Neo based on that. And then seven years later, when we wanted to spin out a company, take the IP, spin it out and form a company, we wanted to get Neo.com because we just called it Project Neo. So let's just get Neo.com. This is in 2007, right? So you could imagine you could get a, a domain like that, but it was mind blowingly expensive. When we looked it up, it was all of $2,000, which was just about $1,800 more than we had or whatever, right? <laughs> and then we grew up in the Java community. And in the Java community, people slapped like the number four and J onto things to call it like for Java. And it would be things like, I write a logging framework. So it's like logging for Java, log for J, right? Neo for J doesn't really make sense. What do you mean Neo for Java? It doesn't really make sense. The domain name was $9. So we got it. And for many, many years, I resisted the urge of renaming the company. So we just called the project Neo4j because what a horrible name that is, right? And so we resisted the urge to call the company that. And after a while, I realized everyone only knows this as Neo4j. So I took it on the chain and renamed the company. And here we are. It's a name like a password. What a great story. So you, you talked a, a little bit in this answer about how seven years later you spun out with the IP and like made it into a company. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Like what led you to decide, let's actually take this tech and yeah. turn it into a company? Yeah. It's, so there are a couple of things, right? I mean, probably three things. First of all, we were scratching our own itch at, at my previous company, which I didn't start. start and I, was just, I was the CTO of that company, so I wasn't the founder or anything. But we were trying to do a bunch of things where the database held us back. That was the initial spark. Why is this so hard, right? And it turned out that we were working with very connected, complex, high, rapidly evolving, massive amounts of data. And that was just a poor fit for the existing SQL-based uh, databases. So that's the first kind of itch. So the first was very practical. The second was somewhat strategic, where it had some clarity of thought for, for once, which is like, we looked at the world, it's like, if you think just like an X and Y chart, right? And the X chart, X axis are like 
is, is T, right? This time, right? And the Y axis is how connected is the world? And you imagine you're at a specific point at a particular year. Going forward, is this arrow going to go up or flat or down? Like, in other words, will the world become more connected or less? And even just phrasing the question like that, my four-year-old daughter, like, she would be able to say, the world will become more connected tomorrow. I mean, it's trivial, right? Once you think about it that way. Well, what's not as trivial is thinking about the consequences that that gives for data. And so what is data actually? Data describes the world. And so as the world is becoming more connected, the data will become more connected. And once you think about that, you realize that maybe we were the only people in the planet to have this problem today. But the one thing we knew, there was going to be more people tomorrow and more people the next day and more people the next day. So we had this feeling that we have this wind behind our, our back. And then the third reason was basically, we were not very smart back then, nor now maybe, but it's like, you know what, I, I'll just open source the entire thing and just give it away. And, you know, that'll be fine. People will use it. It'll be great, right? That was my initial thought. Building a database is fairly resource intensive, right? Like you probably need to be like a big engineering team. And how can I fund that if I give it away for free? Huh? <laughs> really brilliant thinking there. So everyone go, wait, we should probably form a company around it. So that's when we then ultimately uh, decided to spin it out. Just to finish my thought, was the idea for a company so that you could raise money for the company or so that you could charge customers money for the software? No, so the idea was that we, so that we could hire engineers to work on the product, make the product better. And then my initial thought was maybe I'll raise like $100,000 <laughs> or something like that in the, in the entirety of the company. And now here we are, you know, raised half a billion. So it ended up being slightly more than that. But the idea was just to be able to hire people full time to work on the product. Cool. Um, so what, what I thought would be most useful to our audience, which consists mostly of really early stage founders, many of whom are building dev tools and many of whom are thinking about or already executing on open source kind of strategies, is to try to think back to the early days of building, building Neo4j and, and try to get into your head a little bit and see what we can learn from that experience. I'll do my best to kind of pull this out of you and you do your best to put yourself back in that $300 billion of financing. Good, right? Um, the first question I think I need to ask you before we get into sort of more of the tactics on pricing and strategy and feature roadmap one is just a question on, of category creation and what did you guys think you were doing? In other words, there were other graph databases out there. As you said, databases are very hard to build. You're a little startup. Do you think that big banks were going to run things on your software? Like, how did you think about what you were doing? And, and did you even think in terms of category creation? Or it sounds a little bit like you weren't really thinking that way, but take us back to that. It's such an interesting topic. I'm obviously geek, right? And I wrote the first couple of versions of our kernel together with, with my co-founders, right? And so I'm, I'm an engineer by background. So that's how I approach things. But I love marketing. I'm a student of marketing. And I find category creation to be like this very fascinating topic because the physics, when you do category creation, the physics of your marketing is in many times, in many situations, it's inverted from when you don't do category creation, which is, of course, the vast majority of people aren't doing category creation. So it's very counterintuitive in many ways, but I, but I think it's very fascinating. And so what ended up happening for us was that we had built this thing to scratch our own itch. We thought it was very powerful. We thought it was widely applicable. And we had a name for it. We initially called it Neo. And so the question then was, Neo is an X. What is X? Solve for X. Is it a database? Yes, it is a database. But calling it just a database simultaneously oversells it and undersells it. Because 
it can do so much more than a relational database. So we are, we've undersold it. But on the flip side, it also is nowhere near as mature as a relational database. So it's actually un undersells it too. And so it, it does both of those things at the same time. And so we couldn't just call it a, a database. That would set the wrong expectations. So we needed to find like something that is X. And so we tried a bunch of different things. The first ever public talk that I gave said something like Neo is a net base. And NetBase was like this combination of network and database, NetBase. It was struggling to coin a term. And I think that the definition of a marketing message is a message that you give to the market and the market gives it back to you, like echoes it back to you. That's a definition in my mind for a message that is resonating. And we tried NetBase and it just fell flat. Like <laughs> we were the only people who ever, ever said that. So clearly that doesn't work. So then we tried network-oriented database and that didn't work either. And then, and this is like it's mid 2000s, late 2000s. One, like at one point, one of my friends who went to like an Ivy League school in the US, he pointed me to this website kind of out, out of the blue. We were kind of talking about something completely different. And the website, there was a consumer facing website, student facing website, which said, We're a utility for the social graph. The website was called thefacebook.com. And I'm like, Holy crap, if this dude can say, use the word graph, right? When he writes a service for consumers, for, for human beings, I can use the word graph because I'd stayed away from the word graph because it sounds so mathy. Because people like who are engineers, they remember graph theory from math. It was tipping, it wasn't all that fun and, and whatnot. So I stayed away from the word graph. But then it's like, okay, if he can use the word graph, I'll, I'll try it. So let's call it Neo or Neo for is a graph database, right? And it was magical. It just clicked. And I still remember the first time when I realized this, which was just a couple of weeks after we'd coined the term. I was at a party, pre-kids and, and wife and whatnot. I was actually at a party. I, I used to do stuff like that back then. <laughs> so I was actually at a party. It was here in Sweden. So this is before I moved to the Valley, right? And so hanging out, just talking over beers with, with someone. He happened to work at Ericsson. And so after a while, he asked us, what do you do? And I think, okay, I'm going to try this. Now. So I said, I work for a graph database company. And it's like, oh, cool. I'm like, really? What, what do you mean, right? And it's like, do you know what graph databases are? I asked him and he's like, yeah, totally. I played around with them a lot in college, but I haven't worked with them more recently. I just thought to myself, no, like I just made up the term two weeks ago, right? But it had this magical quality where people believed that it was something before it actually even existed. And so that's when I decided to lean in on that. And we then spent basically a decade, like you can summarize the previous 10 years of my life as defining what a graph database is and then evangelizing not just what it is, but when to use it and when not to use it. And what success looks like when you do category creation is that you get competition. And so we have a lot of early stage founders on, like whenever you see CEOs like, or, or, or founders or whatever, like go and, and, they, and they get competition for one of the, the big players, like the BS answer is always, like the PR answer is always, this is validating our market and you know, stuff like that. And in categorization, that's actually true. That is what you want to see. You want to get someone who comes in and they, they call it the same thing. And so that's probably a way too long answer uh, to that question, but that unpacks a little bit about the category creation piece. It's really very important to us. That's really helpful. I don't know where this journey, because it's really quite interesting to hear you talk about creating this from nothing, like literally you coined the term for what it is. When I first met, you know, Neo, it was like, oh, it was one of the graph databases. It wasn't like the graph database, which is just a you know, testament to the success you guys had. 
I don't know when this concept sort of intercepted market demand and money. And maybe that's probably the next question. When did you decide that you could actually even contemplate taking money from people? And what did you feel like you had to achieve before that point? Like what for you was MVP? Was it a certain level of usage? Was it a certain community size? Did you want some traditional company to use it? So we initially built it at that previous startup where we were to solve our own problem. And not for that startup to become a database company, but in order to use that database in, internally at, at that company. So that gave us, once we spun it out, it gave us the confidence that this thing works in the real world. It's harder to use than it needs to be because it was built fairly custom to that situation. Yes, there's a bunch of other things that we can improve and documentation and stuff like that. But the core of the product worked really well. And when you build a database, like, it takes a while to get there. It's such a back-end R&D heavy thing. Store data on this, never lose it. It has to be scalable performance, all that kind of stuff. So we had that initially. And so once we spun it out, we had two tracks on the broader go-to-market. One was open source and creating a community. And so there's a lot to talk about, about, about there, but your question was specifically about customers, right? And so that was the second track, which was basically hand-to-hand combat through our own social graph, through our own network, like finding people who this project would be a good fit for a graph database and then get them to use it. And initially we were extremely unsuccessful with that unless we sold PS with it. So professional services. So the initial deals, we didn't make any money from, from the product. It was all consulting revenue. And it also partially bootstrapped the company before, before we raised a VC fund. And that got it into production. And we happened to be students at the time, at least it's partially. So some of the early users were in high-ed institutions. So like the back into like, you can imagine that if you have courses and students going to courses and these courses are organized in broader themes and then there's a teacher and a professor and there's a teacher assistant and you enroll in various levels and they're part of broader programs. They can declare your major based on this. You can see how that's a connected data structure. So that was one of the first uh, projects for us. And again, we didn't make any money there in terms of license revenue or ARR, anything like that, but it's all consulting. But the goal there was really to have someone use it in production who wasn't us. That takes guts in the sense that if you're selling too much PS, you don't really know if they're buying the graph database or they're buying these really smart guys. I don't care how they build it. It just works. Yes. I think we had some amount of clarity on that, though today I would be more, more nuanced around that. For us, what we wanted was to be able to point to someone as an anchor deployment, like a reference customer, even though they hadn't paid, they were at least a reference customer from a technology perspective. Yep, it's up and running in production. It works, right? And it's it's not a company affiliated with us. So that was kind of the MO for that one, more so than proving out a repeatable go-to-market engine. Okay. Let me just jump right into that. What were your early thoughts on pricing when things started to get potentially repeatable? Actually, wait, I need to back up. When did you think they could be repeatable? What was the trigger oh, in realizing, oh, we should put up a pricing page? There's a bunch of drawbacks with open source. I'm not kind of a card-carrying member of like everything to be open source and, and so on and so forth. Like there, there's drawbacks with open source. But here we had a massive advantage of being open source because I mentioned there were two tracks. One was the hand-to-hand combat, finding people, kind of anchor accounts, though maybe not a lot of money, but still like using it in production. That was the one path. And then the second path was create a community. And that one was very much making it available for download, create a forum, create a mailing list, 
go give talks. We were super active on, because no sequel started happening around this time, which ended up being a really hot topic. And we became thought leaders in NoSQL. So we gave talks about, there's 38 new databases now. There used to be only four. For like decades, there were four databases, right? Now there's 38, right? Here are the subcategories. These seven are key value stores. These three are column family, and these are graph database. And so we started taxonomizing the space. So that gave us some thought leadership and broader awareness. There were blog posts written about this. We engaged in kind of non-lame marketing. <laughs> and what I mean by that is there's a blog post that talked about, here's how you can represent graphs in SQL. And so then we took that example, rather than just going and say, uh, you should use a graph database and then like a, a link to Neo4j. We actually took that entire blog post, the example, reported it to Neo4j, showed where Neo4j was superior, and then wrote a blog, which took like a day or two, right? And then wrote a comment and linked back to it. So like real high quality content, all of that gave us just step-by-step step more of a community. And then after a while, we started getting inbound. It's like, oh, look, I want to use this in production. Can I get support from you? Oh, I need high availability. That's not available, right? Well, no, we're going to build that next year. Okay. But I need it now. Okay, well, we, maybe we'll be able to accelerate that, but then you need to enter into an agreement with us. And, and so then you started, okay, maybe there's a way to start monetizing this. And so that was the trigger when we realized we, we should start figure this out. Actually, so actually, this is a good, good time to ask. We had a question from Martin McKeeley from, from Belfast about sort of feature prioritization, which seems like something you're talking about now, right? So those early yeah. days when you have customers coming in, and this is faced by all kinds of early companies, right? No one's paying you anything yet, and some big fancy customer that you know has budget asks you for some feature that's painful and expensive, and you're not sure anyone else is going to want it. What do you do? How do you think about feature prioritization? Yeah. So that latter one, we've been like honestly religious about. We've never ever built something that's just a one-off, right? Well, we've never ever built that in outside of engineering. Now we have a professional services team. They do that all the time. That's their job. But in terms of engineering, we never build one-off features into the product. So we were able to be relatively disciplined about that. Uh, a more common and constantly struggling type of a question was that of differentiation between the free and the paid, right? And so we ended up having a community edition, which was fully featured. And then over time, we built an enterprise edition. And what ended up happening there, and we had some ideas around this, that we wanted to have a very strongly differentiated enterprise edition. And that is honestly because I was careful and risk averse. And when we talked before, I said it was a coward. <laughs> and maybe that's the, the really blunt way of, of, of saying it, right? Which is, I wanted to preserve the upside in terms of monetization. And I wasn't gutsy enough to put it all into the community edition. And then on the hope that I would be able to monetize later. So our thought was that we're going to hold back a few key features that big companies will need. Things like high availability. That was really the anchor key one. And so what that means for a database, just for the, for the folks who don't work with databases uh, every day, is like you spin up your database on, on your laptop to build your application, and then you deploy it in production. It runs on some server. Clustering is a, is a functionality that replicates the data across many machines. So if one machine goes down, your database is still up and running. Like you don't need that if you're a hobbyist. You don't need that if it's an important but not super important project. 
But if you work at a Fortune 500, and this is a mission-critical project, you have to have it. It has to be there. So we figured that was a good thing to put in the enterprise edition, right? Now, we were still busy building very fundamental things in the database, like we didn't have a query language. We didn't have any drivers. In fact, we're programming. So there's a lot of very just fundamental blocking and tackling that we still needed to do. So we never got to this high availability thing until we had our first Fortune 500 customer. And that was Cisco. And so Cisco came in as the first Fortune 500 company to use Neo4j. They were building what's called a master data management system. So mapping all the internal sales hierarchy, and it's called org MDM, map for calculating compensation to, to support the business, not customer facing for them. It's not core. In other words, you work in line. Exactly. That's exactly right. Like Cisco is a first paying customer. What is this, like an active charity? Like, but they were... It was experimental for them, right? It was not it, it, critical that it, it be not. No, it was not experimental because the, the system would go into production and then it had like rev rec impact. So revenue recognition, for, for those of you who don't wear a CFO hat, right? So revenue recognitions, in other words, if, if you miscalculate the sales compensation, if that takes too long, like that'll impact your earnings, which is like, that's massive. So it, it was not experimental. The key thing here was there was a champion, like somewhat like a, a really sharp director level dude who really understood what we were doing. And he was, I guess the technical term is like an intrapreneur. I'm, I'm sure we've all bumped into big company people who, who say, look, I'm, I'm actually like an entrepreneur. Like I, I just happen to work in a big company or like, you should think of us as a startup inside of X. And I always ask them, well, do you get a salary every month? It's like, what do you mean? Yes, of course. Well, then you're actually not a startup inside of a big company, right? You know, because like it's a very, very different, just the fact that you phrase it that way means that you don't know what a startup is. But this guy, Prem, he was like definitely entrepreneurial in, in all the right ways. He had an ability to take the core capabilities of what we did, which at the time was described even more geekily than it is described today. It's like, Nodes and relationships and traversal APIs and stuff like that. And he realized what this could do to his project. And so he, he, he took it on, but he said, there's no way I can buy this without high availability. And so I committed to, okay, we're, look, we're, we're going to do that. And it took us it, just a couple of months. He had the clout to get it done, right? No, I didn't. And I wasn't savvy enough to understand that. And like, when he said that, I just said, okay, we'll build it. I played it so naively. And it was just thanks to luck and him being a really good person who didn't want to screw anyone over and stuff like that, that it actually ended up working out. Because the real way to do it, of course, is to get a, a deal before you start writing this code that you're promising away. Now, to the earlier point, we knew this was something that we wanted to do. This was on the roadmap. This was not a Cisco-specific thing. This is an absolute requirement for any database. So it was not a one-off thing, right? But in order to commit to getting it done on a specific deadline, in the hope that they would sign the deal, is ridiculously naive. We went down that path. I didn't have any go-to-market. I, I was the sales leader at the time. I was doing all the negotiations, all the red lines, not even smart enough to really use a lawyer for it. And there's all kinds of weird mistakes that we did um, back then. But ultimately, we realized that this clustering feature it is what we believe it to be, what it should be in theory, which is an absolute requirement for the global 2000 when they put something in production. And so it validated that monetization strategy. 
Cool. So I, I want to go back to your price model, but before that, uh, Martin McKeevey, who I asked this question for, is actually on the call now. So let me bring him on with a follow-up question. Thanks very much for answering that question. It was good to hear your insight about those two pillars, the big use cases and the community side of things. Now, just on that, like I have a bit of a follow-up. How did you sort of start to divide the company and allocate responsibility to those two things? Did you allocate one or more teams to that enterprise side of things and support, and then other teams that worked on the kind of wider open source community aspect. How did you think about that and how did you start to split the teams? And was there any kind of like teething pains when you did so? It's such a wise question. I wish I had a wise answer, but I, I don't. So I'll give you the real answer, <laughs> which unfortunately is okay. very wise. But all of us did everything. So at this point in time, we were about six people and we were all engineers and we were all pre-sales, all community managers. So everyone like who wrote code, like to move the product forward, they were also out with customers, maybe not wearing the sales hat, that is purely me and like managing the relationship and stuff like that. That is all on me, right? But then in terms of implementing those projects, there was the same people who also wrote the code in the actual database. And were also the people who, I guess my example was, we took that one blog post about graphs in SQL and we ported that and wrote our own thoughtful, long, comprehensive, substance-heavy blog post about it, same six people, right? And so so it was not a very kind of bucketed thing. If I look at it with today's lens, it, it, it put a lot of onus on me to actually divvy up the work and, and figure out so that we didn't to squeeze out one at one part of it and put a lot of bonus on the people to have a company-wide type of, of view and realize that actually it is more important. It, like Emily's out talking to customers for a couple of days. Is it more important to write this blog post than to work on this feature? Now, the good news was that when you're six people, everyone can have a company-wide holistic point of view. And so it was very, very informal how we approached it. I'm not, by the way, recommending it, but that's that's factually how it happens. Well, the obvious follow-up is like, so what do you recommend? There, there are benefits, by the way. There's a lot of CEOs that say, well, everybody talks to customers because it's important and everybody writes content, right? So, so there's two sides of that coin. What's your advice? If I could do it all over again, I probably would do it in the same way at size six. Once you hit like a dozen or more, I would start compartmentalized because then it's too many streams going on and too many people going on. And Look, at a small company, you don't have three managers and nine individual contributors. Like you're all individual contributors on some level. So at that point, I would start compartmentalizing a little bit, but not too much. Because I think that the big worry that I had was, will one of them drown out the other? So will we go down the path of only talking to these initially kind of universities and then other companies that we knew, other startups, and all of a sudden we start training ourselves, our muscle memory, and the org that the go-to-market is this hand-to-hand combat, meet someone, pull out your brochure, which of course we didn't have, but conceptually speaking, what a graph database is, and sell it top-down type of a thing. We knew that was very valuable as a bootstrapping mechanism, but that is not how we wanted to go to market. So the worry was that this one would drown out the more long-term community focus. And it didn't end up happening because we just paid attention to it when we were small. And then over time, we structured, we had a community team, we had, of course, a dedicated engineering team, and we had sales engineers and, and, and so on, as we grew a little bit in size. Awesome. Oh, super helpful. Thanks. 
Very cool. So up next, we're going to be joined by Joe. He's from Belfast. He is the co-founder of Studybase. I also work with Martin, who just asked the previous question. <laughs> so you've mentioned multiple marketing channels. And I was just wondering, which ones did you find most successful in the early days? And more importantly, how did you measure and know that they were successful? When you say marketing channels, just clarify to me what you mean by that. So the go to market channels that you were basically using to attract new developers towards the platform. I know that you mentioned that you wrote blogs and you tried to go to meetups, but I was just trying to understand when it comes to the world of open source, sometimes it's hard to record data and work out what the best attribution channel is. I was just wondering how you went about that. It's such a good question. It, it sounds like you're coming from the space because it's a nuanced point of view, right? Because in the SaaS, pure SaaS world, it's like, it's so easy to track soup to nuts, cradle to grave, like all, all the metrics and how the entire end-to-end -end user journey actually progresses or not. In the world of open source, we don't have that because you ultimately you drive people to, to, to your side and you can use your normal MarTech stack for that, right? Which we, by the way, didn't have in 2009, 2010, 2011. We had some Google Analytics and that was just about it, right? But then even today, you end up like, download this thing. You don't even put a registration wall in front of it and it's a black hole. It just disappears. For a while, we put like a ET phone home feature, right? So telemetrics into the product that was really valuable on in aggregate. So all of a sudden we could see kind of broad, what continents were people from. We could track some of that back to some of our marketing analytics. So we could do a little bit of a closed loop, but it was of course, highly anonymized and all that kind of stuff. And so that is a little bit, that is valuable, but then we shut that down when GDPR came along. There was probably an overly cautious interpretation of GDPR. But so since then we haven't had any, any metrics, right? So a lot of it was based on honestly gut feel and kind of qualitative assessment. And, and you can imagine as data geeks ourselves, like we, we're not overly ecstatic about using gut feeling as a basis for our decisions, but it, it, it is, it is what we had. I want to go back to where you were previously, Italy, you were talking about the early sort of product segmentation pricing plan. You talked about community edition, enterprise edition, feature breakdown between them. Was there another edition? Did you ever think about volume-based pricing or value-based pricing, or was it just like a feature wall? And define community edition, because a lot of people use that term. I'm not 100% sure I know what exactly it means. It seems to mean different things, different people. So does it just oh. mean like the free one, or does it just mean like, and sometimes it's an impoverished one, right? So let me start maybe with the, with the last part. So our community edition is the free one, right? That's the one that is available. It's open source under the GPL, a particular open source license, and it's fully featured. So if you only want to deploy in one machine, like there's, there are no, like all the APIs exist. You can, you can write your entire application, right? A hundred percent full feature. There's no enterprise feature that's not available in the community so the way we talk about it and, and think about it is that it's fully featured for the developer. And so what that means is that for that one individual developer, it's fully featured. But I just said that high availability wasn't available. And so, so on some level, it's not fully featured. And the way we think about that is that we then have our enterprise edition, which is fully featured for the company. So that's high availability. That's, that's for the ops people, right? The SRE team or ops team. It's fully featured for your lawyers because it's not just open source and it's it's a commercial edition with indemnification, all that kind of stuff. It's fully featured for your development team. So there's some team features that are only available in the 
in, in the enterprise edition. But if your goal is to write an application, you're a solo developer, maybe a small team, you can do that all with, with the community edition. So that's how we initially thought about it. And largely that's how we still think about it. Then there's an entire, the platform shift to the cloud and how that's impacted things. We probably don't have time to go into, but it's super fascinating. The interplay between cloud and open source is, is, is very, very fascinating, of, of course. But the initial way that we wanted to price this it's as ridiculous as the category creation when we called it a net base and stuff like that. I was always struggling with with pricing. And I think pricing is so hard for everyone. That's always very, very hard. But in particular with infrastructure software, with horizontal software, it's maybe even harder than for other types of, of, of software. Because if you sell into, with more verticalized product, you solve a specific business problem. And what that business problem, so that's proxy for it. There's someone who sits in the line of business who has a problem, like maybe they work at a retailer and they are in charge of online sales. And so then as they shift to become increasingly dependent on that because COVID hits, for example, then they need a recommendation engine, right? That recommendation engine solves a business problem for that line of business executive, the VP of online sales at your big, big retailer. We all on this call know how to price that. Right? There's a recommendation engine. If it works well, it's going to drive up your online sales by about 3 to 5%. The way to price that is to take a cut of that. Right? If we drive it up by a million, we're going to get whatever, 100K, 50K, whatever the number is. If we drive it up by 5 million, we're going to get 10% of that. If, uh, a billion, we're going to get 10% of that. Value-based pricing. That's the perfect way to do that. When you do horizontal technology, like you don't have, you're one layer removed from that business problem. And the primitives that you have to work with are different, right? Because you're ultimately embedded in a project and that project solves the business problem. But you can't negotiate that because then your go-to-market becomes too costly. Look, I should take a step back. In theory, you can, but then your go-to-market becomes too costly because you have custom pricing for each bespoke project, which is basically how we go to market through OEMs, which is a different motion, different story kind of all kinds of benefits, but it doesn't scale in the way that you need to scale most horizontal software. And so then you sit there and you're like, so what do I have available to myself? Well, then you start thinking through, okay, what truly are the value drivers of my product? When do I provide the most value? And for us, it's like, well, hmm, the more nodes you have in your product, the more relationship you have in, in your product, the more value you will probably get from it. It's not perfect correlation. But it's pretty close, right? The interest though, right? It's so easy to screw that up. So easy to screw it up. And like when you do it pitch perfectly, there will still be a bunch of situations when you're embedded in a project that saves a big company millions, if not tens of millions, if not billions, and you charge them $38,000. And that's if you're successful, right? So even when you're successful, like there's all these edge cases that you have to give away. But what's the alternative? You have to sit back and then think, well, do I want to become a verticalized company? There's one absolute natural law in startups, which is anyone who's doing a horizontal company is secretly longing to become a vertical company so that they can talk to the line of business executive or whatever and get that value-based pricing and all that good stuff. Solve a real business problem. You can explain it to your grandmother, all that good stuff. And anyone who has a verticalized SaaS application, they secretly long to be a horizontal. We want to be a platform. So that's always going to be there. So if your vision is to be horizontal, the alternative is to verticalize, and that's by definition not what you want, right? That's not what's right for your company. So then you have to price it in a way that will sometimes leave money on the table, and that's fine because the upside is that just for us, 
We are in recommendation engines. We're in fraud detection. We're in identity access management. We're in knowledge graphs. We're in, there's hundreds of use cases. There's thousands of use cases for graph databases, and we're embedded in all of them. And with the pricing model that sometimes leaves money on the table, yeah. but we have this there's, massive there's, horizontal reach. There's a potentially dangerous learning from this for someone listening to this. Oh, I guess pricing is a proxy for how confident am I in my tail. And so if I want to project that I'm super confident about the size of my market, I'll lower my price because I'm going to be used everywhere. That's not really what you're saying though, right? That's not at all what I'm saying. Let me maybe address that through a war story. So that is what happened to us. We underpriced. We underpriced significantly because it's, it's exactly what you've said. We believe that we're going to be everywhere day one. Why? Because it's a graph database. It's the best thing since sliced bread. Here's right. where the reality distortion field and us drink our, not water. We didn't drink water. We drank our own Kool-Aid. We just thought this is the most amazing thing ever. Everyone will want it tomorrow. And so we priced it initially really low. And that was one of the problems. Wait, 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 hold on. Did you know you priced it low? Did you think no. you priced it low at the time? You no. thought you priced it the right way. We, 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 we thought on the price elasticity, we thought we were the pitch perfect, <laughs> exactly where you're, where you're supposed to be. Still worried you were overpricing, right? We were significantly underpriced. No, but you were right. probably still worried about the price. You thought we... Yeah, it, exactly. It, 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 that's okay. exactly right. So how did you realize it was too low? Yeah, so a couple of things started happening, right? So first of all, we tried to price it based on those initial primitives of our data model, nodes and relationships. So we tried that and that didn't work because the customers didn't get it. They were developers, right? They didn't understand your pricing or they didn't even know what it exactly. was. But the latter, so therefore they didn't understand the format, right? right? So basically they were developers. So theoretically understood that a node and a relationship, but they had no way of going from, I'm sitting here and I'm going to write the new project. How many nodes and relationships will I have? They had no idea whatsoever. And this was back in the days where initially you had a perpetual pricing model. We didn't even have a subscription pricing model because this is the while back. And then, so they're like, oh, okay, if we get it wrong, that's going to suck really bad. And so there's a lot of friction there in, in that one. So then we had to go back to the drawing board and, and we realized that after talking to a bunch of people who wanted to buy our software, small companies a little bit, but primarily enterprises, we realized that the procurement department at the Global 2000 they had been trained for three decades, four decades by Larry Ellison, that the way that you buy databases is per core. And we thought that was a, even a worse correlation to ultimate business value than the, the notes and relationships approach. But it was the one that, that was the entire inertia for our category of product. And so at that point, we just gave up and said, fine, we'll just price it per core. And that was the right thing to do. And then, so how many CPUs am I deploying against this thing? Exactly. So basically, I want to run Neo4j across a cluster of three machines. How many cores do I have per machine, right? I'm 16 here and 16 here and 32 there. You add it all up. That's how many cores. Right. And then you, that, that's it. Right. Nodes doesn't matter because no one knows what that is anyway. Or no one knows exactly. what that is. I can't think about it. And then, willing to accept cores as a value proxy. They have no idea how to think about nodes as a value proxy. So you're basically following... Oracle's pricing strategy. And, and that was the other thing. When you're doing so much new, like remember category creation, teaching developers a completely new API and query language, a new way of thinking about their data. We're taking on so many new things. Also teaching procurement, how to buy this thing. That is just like, we just couldn't take it on. So if, if someone has already educated procurement, what, what's the least path of resistance from procurement? 
you should really strongly considering going down that path. We, we evolved to the right point of view there, I think. The mistake we then made, which is what you were poking at it a, a few minutes ago, was that we then priced it too low. It's like a normal deployment would be 24K per machine. So maybe 50K in total, maybe in theory 72K, but it will always get discounted down to like 50K. And over time, what ended up emerging was that even though it's a very horizontal product that is applicable to startups, mid-market, enterprise, we really started getting most of our uptake inside of the enterprise, inside of the Global 2000. And we hired sales rep that could sell into the enterprise. So here's where we're talking 250 to 300K OTE. I hope that means something. So that's how much money the, the sales reps make. And if you think through the amount of time that they have to spend on a deal that involves a database, which is a long sales cycle, you multiply that by 50K and that the math just doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. But then we looked around kind of more math. So that is the inside out view. And then the outside in view was like, well, you know what? We solve a really mission critical problem for these companies because otherwise they wouldn't even consider a new type of database because that's a crazy thing, right? Like, so we solve a mission critical problem. The competition is weak to non-existent. Today we have Amazon, we have Microsoft, we, the entire axis of evil is like our competitor. You know, enterprise software is like our competitor today. But at the time, we didn't really have any, like any real substantial competition. So that, that means we should have pricing power. And so then we actually bumped up the price. And it was amazing. It just took off. And we grew like we were this kind of tripling year over year kind of path. It was really accelerated by the, the fact that we could raise prices. And so that worked really, really well. And there came the next mistake. So drunk on this power, yeah, we're like, we're solving mission critical problems. Yeah, we have blue chip customers. Yeah, the competition sucks. Let's raise prices again. So we double prices again. And it all fell apart. And we, we have this amazing history. There's a ton of things that have gone wrong, mistakes that I've made. List log, we could just spend weeks talking about the mistakes that I made. One amazing thing is we never miss our number. Like never, ever. Like in 2011, we committed to the board what, what, what our revenue target was going to be. We've hit the number every single year since then. Like that number we committed to the board, hit or beat it, right? With Two exceptions. One is COVID, when we just stopped hiring, replanned everything, right? But the real one, like the real miss was in 2015. And what ended up happening was that we were drunk on this power of being able to raise prices. We thought we delivered so much value, drank our own Kool-Aid, right? And then we doubled prices again. And in Q4, everything looked really great. We thought we were going to kill it. And then December 30th, we're like, we're an enterprise software business at this point. This is 2013, so a few years were maybe three, four, five million of ARR or something like that. So we're getting some amount of repeatability and it's purely focused on the enterprise. And then what happens is that we have six deals December 30th, right? So six deals and normally with the type of qualification we had, three of them would close. I call up Lars, my head of sales at the time was still with the, with the company hungover January 1st after New Year's, I give him a call and it's like, all right, where are we? How many of those six key deals closed? Zero. Zero? Zero. And at this point we had like a fairly diligent statistics, right? On close ratios and stuff like that. It just never happened to us. So the entire physics of our go-to-markets changed when we raised the price to be too high. Why? 
all of a sudden you require approval, not just from the director level person, but from the VP. All of a sudden, you're not just negotiating with someone in procurement. The GC, the general counsel for the company has to sign off. And then ultimately, the value wasn't so big and we didn't sell high enough that we could push through that, 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 that price point. And so that is very costly and we had to backpedal, come back to the board, all embarrassed and you know, all that good stuff. And we backpedaled to the old pricing, which then stuck for several years, actually. That's as good a war story as they come in the pricing. Is a pricing question. So I'll, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead, but we've got a question from Adam Frankel, who's awesome dev marketing, dev product strategy guy. He's worked with a bunch of our companies, couldn't recommend him. And he was the best <laughs> marketing at Neo4j. Hey, things are going great. I, I'd love to chat more, but I, I got a question for you for this presentation. So besides pricing, with the benefit of a decade of hindsight, what would be the biggest change you would have made early on and picking a different first VP of marketing doesn't count? <laughs> I would never do that. Um, it's a great question. I, I actually know exactly what it is. Let me give you the, the small answer and then the big answer. The small answer, I would hire more engineers. So that's the small answer. The big answer is the following. Even though we've taught pricing, we've taught go-to-market, we've taught enterprise sales, all of that kind of stuff, right? The go-to-market for the company was very, very clear, which is win the hearts and minds of developers, build a massive community, grow that pond, and then you monetize, you fish out of that pond with your, let's call it enterprise go-to-market machine, right? That is a PLG game. Even though people didn't call it product-led growth at the time, open source is PLG for business to developers, for B2D startups. That's a PLG game. And in order to win there, you have to invest in the product. But I got too much caught up into the enterprise game. I hired way too many salespeople. We resourced the company, not in the wrong way in a generic sense, but there was a mismatch between the strategy and how we resourced the company. And if we had hired more engineers, built out the product better, built out the developer experience better, that was the key enabler of a broad community was improved developer experience. If we'd done that earlier, we would have been able to grow much faster, even on the monetization side at a later stage. And so that was the key one. But now on the flip side, it's so easy with hindsight, right? Because would we have been able to raise money? Who knows? Clearly, if we had hired more into engineering, we would have run out of money shorter and valuation. So there's all kinds of, it's impossible to A-B test, but that is 100% the thing that I would do differently. Great answer. Thanks. I've also wondered if you've changed your mind on the uh, ease of making money in dev tools versus databases. I, I had, I have. We, we should catch up on that. <laughs> Times have changed. You can now make money on dev tools. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I feel like there's a bunch more stuff we could talk about and, and I, I would love to invite you to do another one of these. Long to do this and there's a ton of fun. We'll do it in Malmo properly. Really appreciate it. Again, and we'll Thank you so much. It's very rare to get this kind of honest and clear-eyed view of some decisions and mistakes and changes made in the early days. And that's just incredibly valuable. Just before we wrap, I want Anna to just highlight our upcoming sessions, which are pretty cool. Yeah, thank you so much. So thanks everyone for joining. We hope that you'll come to our next sessions. We have our next one will be November 10th and it will be with Andrew Edelman.
He is a head of strategic and platform partnerships at Zapier. He'll be talking about product-led partnerships. And then our last session of the year, Leah Moore, who leads marketing at Sneak. We're going to have a fireside chat with her. So we hope to see you there. Thank you, Gil. Thank you, Emil. Great conversation. <laughs>